Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 62. Uh, Want to go for a ride? Want to go for a ride? Let me go. Let me get this. Let's go for a ride, okay? Well, actually, you'll go for a ride. I'll go for a drive. The person who drives the car, they're the one who goes for a drive. The other people, they go for a ride. People don't know that. Tell them when they're in your car. Say, you assholes are going for a ride. I'm going for a drive. Because I'm making the payments on this. This is legendary stand-up comedian George Carlin doing his car routine in his 1984 HBO special, Carlin on Campus. Right now, he's grabbing a chair so he can sit down and pantomime a few bits about the weird stuff we think and do and don't talk about when it comes to cars. Holy shit. I mean, you haven't even gotten in this death machine yet, and you almost died once. Like many stand-up comedians, Carlin often wandered into philosophical and psychological territory. And though he said a thousand true and amazing things about human behavior, there's this one short joke from this special that I would like you to consider. Going for this drive slash ride any minute here. First, a philosophical question. Have you ever noticed when you're driving that anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone driving faster than you is a maniac! <laughs> Say, look at this idiot here. Will you just look at this idiot just creeping along? Whoa, look at that maniac. Go! <laughs> I mean, it's a wonder we ever get anywhere at all with all the idiots and maniacs there are. Because there's certainly no one driving at my speed. In that joke, George Carlin makes an observation that psychologists had been making for a few decades about the way people seem to often incorrectly make sense of the world around them. And in 1979, a legendary psychologist would launch an investigation into that phenomenon by asking unsuspecting college students to walk around campus while wearing a big, hideous, silly, stupid wooden sign. This was an experiment uh, that was kind of designed to very vividly and concretely demonstrate a phenomenon that we call false consensus. That's legendary Stanford psychologist Lee Ross. I'm Lee Ross, and I've been a professor of psychology at Stanford for the past, uh, since 1969. I do work on judgment and decision-making and conflict resolution. In 1979... Ross was hot on the trail of the false consensus effect, which is believing, we now understand, that from one situation to the next, most people would do the same thing as you. It's your belief that your beliefs, opinions, and actions enjoy greater consensus among the public at large than they actually do. And false consensus involves the notion that we uh, overestimate the extent to which other people Uh, see the world the way we do, or we might say we don't make allowance for the fact that other people may see the world, may have expectations, may resolve ambiguity in different ways from us, and for that reason, 
may respond in different ways than we imagined. To study this, Ross and his colleagues asked students at Stanford if they would like to participate in a study supposedly concerned with various non-typical communication media, as they called it, which really was just walking around campus wearing a big sandwich board strapped to your body with a message on the front that said, Eat it, Joe's. Ross suspected that many students would not be thrilled at this proposition, so he offered anyone who wanted to turn down this offer for extra credit the chance to participate in an alternate experiment. Now, this, of course, was the setup for the real experiment. Well, these are, you know, very hip, very cool, at least in their own minds, Stanford students. So should they agree to do this or should they take the other option we offered them, which was, well, you can go away, but then you have to come back for another experiment. And we found roughly half uh, of people were willing to wear the sandwich board sign and roughly half were not willing to wear the sandwich board sign. When Ross asked the students who said, yeah, I'll wear this sign, no problem, to estimate how many of their peers had chosen to do the same thing, most thought that the majority of their fellow students had agreed, not half. Likewise, when he asked the people who refused the same question, they said that they believed most of the other students had also declined just like them. Yes or no, most people thought they were in the majority. Furthermore, when we asked people why they did it, people attributed particular personality traits, being a show-off, being uh, uptight or whatever it is, to people who behave differently from them. Among the people who agreed to wear the sign, people who assumed that everyone else would choose as they had, when they were told that some people had refused, Ross found they tended to say that that must be because of something about that person's character. It revealed something about that person, that they were uncooperative or uptight or something else that was negative or peculiar. For themselves, they said, the choice didn't reveal anything at all. It was the natural choice, the better choice, the normal choice. They were just doing what was reasonable in light of the situation. And when we interviewed them further, we, I might say we never actually had them walk around campus wearing the sign. <laughs> that would have been a step too far. But we asked them, what did you think it would be like? And we found that the people who said that they were willing to wear the sign thought that what would happen would be something like they'd be walking around with a clipboard noticing things. Uh, People would come up to them and saying, what are you doing? They would explain it was a psychology experiment. People would say, how interesting. You're a really good sport. Uh, uh, And so forth. People uh, who had refused to wear it had a very different view about how reality would unfold. They imagine that they might be uh, walking around campus and they'd see someone, perhaps a member of the opposite sex, sex, who they hope to get to know, and the person would kind of stare at them for a second and then turn their back and shake their head and say sort of, what a geek. Ross explained, in psychology, this is called construal. The interpretation of the situation, you know, the stuff happening in a person's head concerning stuff happening in the, quote, real world. And since that stuff is happening in your head, 10 different people might have 10 different construals of a single moment in reality. And likewise, they might have 10 predictions about how the future will unfold should they make a certain choice. In this situation, roughly half of the people who considered wearing the sandwich board predicted a fun, funny, pleasant future, and the other half predicted an embarrassing, boring, unpleasant future. And each half assumed that since that was their automatic reaction, the reaction that came naturally without any deep contemplation, it was also the normal reaction. Anyone who felt differently was weird. And more importantly, wrong. And that's what George Carlin was pointing out when he noticed everyone driving slower than him was an idiot and everyone driving faster than him was a maniac. Ross uses this example in his new book, written with Tom Gilovich, called The Wisest One in the Room. 
He uses it as an illustration of a natural phenomenon most of us never realize is driving our opinions about the people who disagree with us. Carlin's uh, great, great observation in many ways is a metaphor. You believe that uh, when it comes to social change, when it comes to uh, potential uh, attempts to remedy social problems, uh, those going faster than you are going too fast, and those going slower than you are not going fast enough. So it's a, it's a particularly evocative metaphor. Oh, you can think of a hundred different uh, examples of it. Kids jumping from uh, a bridge, you know, uh, the kids who jump from one bridge think that that's fine. The kids who insist on jumping from a lower bridge are cowardly and uncool. And the kids who are jumping from a higher bridge, well, you might admire their daring. You think they're a little crazy. Uh, if you look at what women are wearing on the beach, you can imagine the parallel, uh, the inferences we draw about people who, in your view, are wearing too revealing or too concealing a bathing suit. Uh, all the way through life, we have this willingness to, to uh, first make inaccurate assumptions and predictions about how people will behave, and then to make inaccurate uh, attributions and judgments when we see how they do behave. When you think about the sign study, or you think about the statement by Carlin about people who are idiots or maniacs, except for you, think about it in terms of a spectrum. So there's a spectrum of possible default positions that you will naturally fall into. Just sort of a place that's carved out that you just fit right inside. If you ask enough people if they would like to wear this sign, there's going to be some people who really, really want to wear that sign. They think it's a really great idea. It'll be really fun. They think the people who don't want to wear the sign are prudish or uncooperative or just nasty or something like that. Not normal. But if you were to ask that person if they would like to wear that sign every day till the end of school or only wear that sign, they would say, whoa, that's too far. That is also not normal. But the way I think, the way I feel, that just happens to be perfectly normal. Anyone who sees this differently just isn't living in reality. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And this sandwich board study by Ross, along with some other stuff that he did and some of his colleagues, all led to a 1995 paper called Naive Realism, Implications for Social Conflict and Misunderstanding. And it is one of those papers that just launched a million investigations into how we actually think about reality itself and how we get along with others and don't. And why we have so much conflict in our politics and our personal lives. And it all comes down to that weird thing, that weird term, naive realism. Lee Ross and his co-author Tom Gilovich have written a book called The Wisest One in the Room. And the entire first section of the book deals with this phenomenon. So that's what we're going to talk about in this episode with Lee Ross. And you'll learn all about it after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited 
how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Our guest in this episode is the monumental, influential, and well-known social psychologist, Lee D. Ross, who is a professor right now at Stanford University. He's been active since the late 60s and has contributed to all sorts of things, the fundamental attribution error, um, false consensus effect, the 
all the things we talk about when it comes to attributional biases, attribution theory, just about everything there is to talk about in the world of social psychology, this man, Lee Ross, has contributed some sort of academic prowess and research to the problem. It is uh, my great honor to have him on the show, and I think we should pick his brain. Lee, in your book, you pointed something out that has really uh, stuck with me ever since I read it, and that is you predict that I probably think of myself as being a liber- as liberal as is reasonable, and that, that people to my left, politically speaking, are probably too idealistic, and that people to my right are probably too callous and too selfish, and that then therefore puts me right in this sweet spot, a spot where I see myself as being as reasonable and as rational as possible. How were you so able to accurately predict what I was thinking in your book? Well, there's a way in which it necessarily has to be true. If you thought that it was uh, sensible to be more idealistic uh, than you are now, you'd be more idealistic. And if you thought it was reasonable... If you thought it was what was demanded by political realities to be more conservative, you'd be more conservative. So it's it was a no-brainer. It actually started out, interestingly enough, with a trick I used to do in class. I used to ask people to tell me the name of an animal, uh, their favorite color, and uh, their horoscope sign. And then I would tell them their political position. Oh, wait, how, how does that work? Well, the same way. I mean, I'd say to them then that, uh, well, you're, you're as liberal as you think it's oh, reasonable okay. to be, given the state of the world. People uh, more liberal than you are, are are naive. They don't understand how the world really works. They're idealistic but simplistic. And people to the right, well, they're uh, they're too conservative. They're uh, not sufficiently compassionate. They may <laughs> even be crypto fascists. <laughs> right. It reminds me of the the Forer effect, which is you know you can you give people two statements, one that's kind of true, and one that, there's they're, they're just slightly separate from one another, and people tend to pick and choose the parts that work. But this is much more accurate because everything is true, and it's. I love this because what if you, uh, as you say in the book, if you were more attuned, if you thought people in the, uh, to the left were more attuned to reality or people on the right were more attuned to reality, you would shift your way over there. And you point out in the book that you'd already be there. You'd already be there. And it, for me, it helped me kind of understand that, you know, there is a, if we look at it as a spectrum and, you know, with two extremes that we, because of our life experiences, because of the, the way that our brain has been put together over time, not just by our biology, but also our cultural influences that we sort of have found everyone, each one of us has found this groove, this, this slot within that spectrum that feels right. And when we see something that is outside of, you know, one way to the other, it becomes too that you say in the book that it's uh music. It can is too loud or food. Food is, um, too spicy, but whenever you use that word too X, you know, too whatever, too is really loaded. And if you like, uh, could you sort of uh, elaborate on why that thinking something is too much one way or the other says more about yourself than the thing that is being observed? Well, of course, uh, it does say something about yourself. Uh, I think it's important to uh, clarify that. We don't think that we're just kind of passive recorders of, of the world. We recognize that the way we see things has been influenced by our experience, by our education, uh, maybe even by our culture. But we think that in our own case, those sources of influence are a source of enlightenment. They make us understand how things really are. But in the case of other people with different experiences and uh, different backgrounds, uh, we think that they are understandably biased uh, by those. We may even 
believe that if we were in their shoes, we would think and act and see things the way they do. But that doesn't mean we think they'd be right. We just think we'd be subject to the same biases that they are. We think that we're not the ones, that we are free of biases and that the influences on us are not biases, they're sources of wisdom or enlightenment. Yeah, this is probably the most sort of, um, this is the thing that really has shook me the most in, in thinking about this, in, is that it seems to be that you're saying that we rec- whenever someone, we believe that the best thing in the world probably is to be fully enlightened or something to that effect. And and the worst thing in the world would be to be fully biased. Yet a lot of your research and a lot of research that you discuss in the book tells us that depending on your on where you're sitting ideologically, any experience that a person has, a life experience, uh, can be looked upon as being a bias in some regards or enlightenment in other situations. For, like you bring up Dick Cheney's stance uh, on... Um, same-sex right, uh, gay, gay rights, same-sex marriage, that sort of thing. And some people, based off their ideological position, will see him as being biased because of his daughter, and other people will see him as being enlightened because of his daughter. That's right. Um, and either way, the man has just simply had a lived experience that has informed his views. But um, it makes it feel like there's no, there is no objective position. And so, you know, people who agree with you or who share your demographics you see them as being rewarded by experience with enlightenment and people who disagree with you are polluted by experience with bias. And so, um, and you even talk about in the book that the more objective a news source becomes, the more biased it seems to both sides of the political spectrum. Inevitably, if I think the world's black and you think it's white, we're both going to think someone who says it's gray it's complicated, there's some black and there's some white. We're both going to think that that person isn't seeing things the way they really are, that they're taking the other side's exaggerations and uh, irrelevant observations and giving them just as much weight as our sound reasoning and, and trenchant examples. Uh, and so that becomes inevitable. But David... I think, really, to understand naive realism, we have to take a step back. Uh, I know in the, uh, the book, in The Wisest One in the Room, we start out with a quotation from Einstein, who says, uh, reality is an illusion. Uh, I, I think he actually may have said, reality, of course, is an illusion. And what that means is, from the viewpoint of a physicist, what, what our experience of the world is, is the particular kind of interaction between the stuff we're made of and the stuff that's out there, both of which are uh, incredibly, unknowably complex. And so the things we experience are completely a product of what we're made of. The world mm-hmm. looks red because of the kinds of eyes we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, we see solid objects, we perceive time, and all of that stuff because of the kind of meat that we're made of. <laughs> right, right. And uh, I, I like, there's an example in the book we use that I like, uh, where people often will talk about their dog being colorblind. And... Uh, they don't ever say, well, my dog sees the world the way it is. I have these peculiar lenses which make me see it, uh, see colors. But let me tell you, uh, these dogs really smell the world the way it really is. And I walk around being kind of odor blind. Right, right, yeah. You know, uh, the neuroscientist uh, David Eagleman, he, he talks in his lectures about the Umwelt, which is sort of a it's the German... Uh, yeah. Word word for you know like the 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 totality of subjective experience from one creature yeah, to the I mean, next worldview literally yeah so like in that you know in the way he uses it is to think of like you know a tick or a uh, you know a fish or a, you know a bullfrog are going to 
they're all they're all interacting with some form of objective reality, but their subjective realities are so different from each other and from our own. Um, who can say, you know, who is closest to the the most accurate portrayal of that objective reality in their brains? And well, I think Einstein is saying something more than that. He's saying there is no objective reality, or at least no objective reality in terms of anyone's perception of it, because what we perceive, even, as I said, the world of solid objects uh, with three dimensions, a world with colors, and all those things are, are a product of the particular kinds of receptors that we have. Mm. And that's true for every creature uh, on Earth. And right. so uh, maybe, you know, uh, there's something objective about saying the world is made up of vibrating strings of infinitesimally small size that acquire mass uh, because of the interaction with particular kinds of fields, uh, which can only be understood in mathematical equations. I mean, that to a physicist is the closest you get to reality. Uh but for us, there's, there's no choice but to, to say that the world, as we perceive it, is the world that we must interact with. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. take comfort from the fact that in almost all important ways, other human beings share, have the same kind of receptors that we do. So that while I emphasize the ways in which we disagree about politics and the kinds of attributions we make, uh, we rely every day on the fact that when I see an oak tree and I point to it and I say, that's an oak tree, you'll say, yep, that's an oak tree. And when I say, it has those things underneath it called acorns, you'll say, yeah, you're right. So most of the time, the way in which we construct the world and uh, and the fact that we construct it through the same uh, cognitive and perceptual machinery is what makes social life possible. Mm-hmm. It's necessary. What what we're writing about when we talk about social conflict and social problems are the particular factors that make us see particular kinds of objects and events uh, differently from each other. Right. It remi- you know. What you're talking about reminds me, there's this great Bertrand Russell quote. Um, he said that the observer, when he seems to himself to be observing a stone, is really, if physics is to be believed, observing the effects of the stone upon himself. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah. I've, I've always enjoyed that. And well, in, I think that's exactly what Einstein is saying as well. He so, would just say, you're, you're experiencing the impact of the stuff that the stone is made of, on the stuff that you're made of. Right. And it seems like, you know, since we're all trying to agree upon what, how our meat stuff is interacting with all these other things out there and what we're trying to agree is happening or what is, what it's representing, you know, when we're talking about apples and pears and tables and cats and dogs, and it seems pretty easy, but as we, um, as it, scales up and we get into discussions of what is morally correct or what is the ethical stance or how should we uh, operate a good society, that's when it starts to become a lot more complicated as to what is the, the, what is the accurate, true, objective, informed, normal place. And that's sort of what naive realism is, right? Could you, um, for people who may have never heard of it before, what is sort of your Give us a tour of what naive realism is, its definition and how it works and how we see it every day. Well, naive realism is the uh, conviction that we see the world in an objective, essentially unmediated way. That is to say that there's a one-to-one relationship between our experience of the world and what the world really is. Because of that, we expect other reasonable people to agree with us, to share our view, and uh, we think that if they don't share our view, the thing to be understood and explained is what it is about them that's making them not see the world 
the way it really is, or in other words, the way we see it. And uh, in different contexts, we come up with different explanations. Sometimes we think they're ignorant, uh, so they need education and our instruction to see things correctly. Sometimes we think they're biased by self-interest. Uh, they can't afford to understand how the world really is. Uh, sometimes we may see it as a product of their culture uh, or their education or their youth or their senility or, or whatever. Uh, but what continues to be the case is that we believe that we are uniquely objective. We may even realize that we change our views sometimes, but when we realize we've changed our views, we have the conviction that we used to see things inaccurately, non-objectively, and now we've arrived at the point where we see things objectively and wisely. And it's similar to you know the the idea that we were talking about earlier, where you're on the road and the person going fast is too fast, the person going slower than you is too slow. In in your in your sort of understanding of your own perception of reality, you you start to see that people who are who see the world differently are not that they see it differently, that they just see it incorrectly. And uh, right. this, this non-objectively, right? And they, but you you have a perfect objective understanding of everything and it's uh why is it so hard to see that in yourself but so easy to see that in other people well uh, my former student uh who's now a professor at, at princeton emily pronin refers to the bias to the biased blind spot which is a metaphor i like that when you're looking out at the world uh almost all objects register on your uh, on your uh, retina except for the ones at this one blind spot uh, namely where the optic nerve is but in this case the blind spot in your perception of the world is with regard to yourself <clears throat> and I think that's a perfect uh, metaphor let me say that this tendency to think that you see things objectively uh, most of the time is harmless or even helpful. Uh, we wouldn't want to go through life constantly uh, uh, contemplating uh, what is the nature of matter uh, and energy and uh, all that stuff. We, the world is as it's given with objects that we relate to. Uh, when you and I talk about an oak tree, we agree about what an oak tree is. The problem is that a lot of the constructs uh, that you and I respond to are more ambiguous, are more uh, socially and culturally constructed. So we may agree on what an oak tree is, and the fact that we each think we're seeing an oak tree as it really is, is not only harmless, it's constructive. We know what to do with it. But when you and I say, talk about a bigot, we may have very different notions of what a bigot is. And, but it feels to us like labeling a bigot as a bigot uh, is the same as labeling uh, an oak tree as an oak tree, when of course it's very different. Uh, one depended a great deal more on the particular unique experiences we have as a human being in the world rather than the shared perceptual apparatus that almost all of us have when we perceive the world. Mm -hmm. See, one of the things that, that really sticks out to me in naive realism is that when you are, since when you're unaware that you're doing this, you start to think when you get into an argument with someone, one of the knee-jerk reactions, I've done this, I've seen other people do this, I see this all the time, especially on social media, is since you believe that your opinions and your perceptions and your ideas and your beliefs and, and your ideology and all that stuff came to you after some sort of careful contemplation and that you see the world as it really is and therefore you're making an accurate estimation of how it works, since you believe that, you think that when someone disagrees with you, the way that you can 
you see them as broken and they can be fixed. And the way you fix them is simply put the same facts that you've seen in front of them and have them look at them and they will, there's, yeah. and there's no other way. If they have, as long as you, if you could just crack open their head and pour a bucket of facts in there. And oftentimes people do this by just Googling a bunch of stuff and then copy pasting the links right over into the person's feed or whatever, or into email. Then the assumption is that as long as they're a reasonable and intelligent and rational person, they'll look at those facts and they will magically become completely in, in line with your with your estimation of how things work. Mm-hmm. And why? Uh, what is the big failure in that? What? Uh, for well, let me give you a real world example. Uh, I do a fair amount of uh, conflict resolution work. Uh, promoting dialogue between groups in conflict in Northern Ireland and in the Middle East with Israelis and Palestinians. And well-meaning people in these situations are actually quite interested in meeting with the other side. Obviously, the hardliners and the extremists aren't. But there's always lots of people who really want to meet with other people. Lots of Israelis who want to meet with Palestinians and vice versa. And why do they want to meet? Because they want to explain to the other side how things really are. Uh, Let me tell you, uh, and they think that if they do that, the other person will become easier to deal with in future. Uh, And if not, it proves that they're not objective, that they're not reasonable, that they're not a partner. What I have never experienced in 40 years of doing this is people who say, I really want to meet with the other side because I think I have things wrong. Mm. I think I don't know the facts. I think my reasoning is askew. I think I'm biased. And I want to meet with the other side so that they can set me straight. I've never, ever had the experience of even a single individual tell me that. Wow. They may say, I want to know how they think so I can empathize or appreciate, but they never think that the purpose of meeting with the other side uh, is to is to uh, have a more rational view. They sometimes think that when they know all the facts that the other side have, their own view might change, but they think that the way it'll change will always still leave them being objective and reasonable. And if the other person at that point agrees with them, then the other person's reasonable. If at that point the other party doesn't agree with them, well, it's it's a sign that the other party is seeing the world through the lens of their uh, self-interest or their uh, cultural history. Again, that is something about them. So the point about naive realism is particularly important when we examine political differences and conflict between individuals and groups. In America, we might say between the red staters and the uh, blue staters. Uh, In the Middle East, of course, it's between uh, Jewish Israelis and uh, Palestinians. So, okay, so a couple of questions come up when when we talk about this, when we think about this. And one is, when... So, you know, one of the strange things about seeing the world this way is to see that if someone if someone disagrees with you, you, you see that as because of some sort of dis... If you think that they have actually seen the same facts as you have, and they have looked at them about as long as you have, and they still feel the same way, you believe that they've been distorted somehow, that they're being influenced or corrupted or polluted or poisoned by... Yeah. self-interest or a uh, ideology or b- they've been persuaded or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering why you think it is that our default position isn't to try to become more correct or to try to update our priors. Why do we instead try to force others to come into line with our own reasoning instead of trying to ferret out where our reasoning may be misguided? Well, of course, uh, our views are not static. They do change, uh, and they change as a function of the way we take in new facts, the facts we're exposed to, the way we interpret those facts. But at each stage in that process, 
we think that our current views are rational ones. So in the famous statement that if I'm not a socialist at uh, 20, uh, I have no uh, compassion, uh, I haven't got a heart, and if I'm uh, still a socialist at 30 or 40 or whatever the year is, I haven't got a brain, I lack common sense. Well, the person who's making that statement is well aware that they've changed their view as a result of additional experience and new facts, but they, uh, they think that the 40-year-old now is rational and the 20-year-old was less rational. They never entertain the possibility that at 20 I saw the world accurately, but now that I'm 40, that I have a wife and kids, I'm inflicted with uh, credit card debt and bourgeois values, I no longer see things the way they really are. Now, so it sort of it seems to me that no matter where we are in the timeline of, of our, you know, short existence, we think that we are at the most, we almost, uh, I think that Daniel Gilbert has a thing called the, the end of history illusion, where we think that we've, we have reached the ultimate version of ourselves and we will never get more accurate than we are now. And, uh, it's, it, what do you think is going on with the, this, um, this very rosy view of, of, of our own estimation of what is and what is not right and correct and moral and ethical? Well, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, question, uh, which I think I now answer more wisely <laughs> than I would have answered it when I was 20 years old. <laughs> so when I was 20 years old, I saw the unfolding of history as a kind of linear project. Uh, the world evolves in the direction of more enlightenment, more appreciation of individualistic and uh, democratic values, uh, more appreciative of the need for liberty and all these things. In other words, to think that history unfolds in a kind of continuing process uh, to uh, an ever better, more rational, gentler world. But if you've been around for a while, you start to see history more in yin and yang terms, more like a pendulum, more, more as a case of where we lurch in one direction and we kind of overcorrect and then we lurch back in a different direction. And uh, so we think of where we are not necessarily as the, the end point of enlightenment, but as having struck the right balance. Mm. Um, which is, you know, I've said this before, like, you know, the, 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 the pursuit of disconfirmation of your assumptions is such a, you know, there's a, a, for many, in many arenas, a, a much richer way to like explore the world. And it's something you don't na necessarily naturally do. It's why science is so, such a great tool yeah. that we had to, we had to invent a tool so that we could do that instead of depending on our default way of doing things, which is to try to confirm all of our hypotheses and, and to not even see that there are hypotheses to see that we think we draw conclusions and we think that we're actually yeah. uh, forming a hypothesis when it's really a conclusion. I, um, I don't, Danny Kahneman, I think you, whose work I'm sure, you know, mm. has a great quotation. He says, every time a hypothesis fails, I gain 15 IQ points. <laughs> what? Uh, that's fantastic because the, you know, I've had, whenever I do lectures, I always try to, I show people, I try to get people to commit confirmation bias in person, and they always do every time, and they're always astonished at how easy it is to produce that, and I try to explain to everyone, you know, that if you think of science not as an institution, but as a, just as a simple tool, a thinking tool that we built, we made, uh, it really, it's, it, it becomes evident how important it is to, um, to really try to find the null hypothesis to whatever it is you believe and see if you can argue for it. And it is odd to me that that's not our, that is not our, the way we naturally approach um, our understanding of natural forces. Uh, if you think about it, uh, I, one of our famous confirmation studies, uh, one for which uh, done with Charlie Lord and Mark Lepper, 
I think you know the study. We showed people who supported capital punishment and people who opposed capital punishment the results of two studies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of which seemed to support their views, one of which opposed their views, and we systematically varied what methodology we said uh, was used for the two studies. Uh, and so what we found is that people thought that the study that supported their beliefs was the better done, right, uh, right. more coherent study than the study that opposed it. Uh, and because of that, having read two studies which were equally uh, reasonable, uh, both sides became more convinced of their views. Uh -huh. so, so that's an interesting finding. But if you think about it, uh, there's nothing wrong or irrational about giving weight to your prior beliefs when you, when you process information about the world. We couldn't make sense of it otherwise. Uh -huh. If someone across the room has a kind of uh, ambiguous expression on their face when, you, when they look at you and you don't know whether they're smiling or frowning, if it's a friend, you should assume they're smiling. If it's a, uh, an enemy, uh, you should assume they're frowning. You may be wrong, and that may get in the way of new learning, but on average, it will serve you well. Mm -hmm. The point about the scientific method is it doesn't let you do that. The scientific method says you can look at data in as biased a way as you want. That's how you make sense of the world using your, your understanding and intuition. What you can't do is process information in the light of your beliefs and then test those beliefs with the information you've just processed. That is, that is what the strength of the scientific method is. It makes us dumb in the sense <laughs> that we're not allowed to take advantage of our ability to... Uh, explain away counterexamples uh, and things like that. It makes us dumb in a way about that, but it saves us from confirmation bias. And that is the most important contribution of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. It seems like, I, you know, I keep hearing this throughout your message, and, both in the book and, and here in this, uh, in, in this conversation, that, um, you know, if you, if you go to if you approach somebody whose views are different from your own with the goal of bringing them over to your side, you know, you're going to be disappointed and there's going to be conflict. But if you instead have the, the approach that I'm going to, I'm trying, I'm hoping that this person will change my views, that I will grow as a person, that yeah. this is an opportunity for me to, to sort of feel out the, the shape of my own ignorance, then, then you will you're almost guaranteed to get what you're looking for if you take that approach. Let me tell you a great Abe Lincoln quote that we had in the book. Lincoln says, famously said, I don't like that man. I'm going to try to get to know him better. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's, this is all such great stuff, and I, I, I have to let you go, I know, but um, if, before you go, what, and I forgot to ask this, but what, if anything, can we do to, as individuals or as a society, to to mitigate sort of the negative effects that come around because of our innate naive realism? Well, uh, I think, I think you, as a starting point, uh, it's very helpful to just be exposed to, uh, to cases where people were able to step outside it. We gave one example in the book that I liked a lot, which was uh, the speech that Frederick Douglass gave at the time a monument to Abraham Lincoln was being uh, dedicated. And uh, Douglass, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but Douglass essentially said, viewed from genuine abolitionist ground, namely as an abolitionist and a political activists said Mr. President Lincoln was inconstant, slow, hesitant, you know, et cetera, et cetera, describing it that way. And then he goes on and says, but given 
the political uh, forces he had to deal with. And given his own background, uh, it's hard to imagine him doing otherwise. And he concludes by saying history or providence uh, viewed from, the, from that viewpoint, viewed through the eyes of history and providence, there never, Lincoln was swift and sure, and we could not have been sent a, uh, a better uh, president to bring about the changes he brought about. So that capacity to say, here's how I see the world, but let me tell you the ways in which I can best appreciate the way the other person sees the world. That exercise mm -hmm. is always a useful one. You know, we often use metaphors, walk in the other's shoes, wear their glasses. I don't like those foot, those what I call footwear and eyeglass uh, metaphors because I, <laughs> I don't think they work. The whole point about naive realism is we can't do that. But what we can right. do is recognize the authenticity of the other person, that they are behaving uh, in accord with their own values that are authentic, that in many ways, uh, despite the disagreements we might have about policy, uh, if we spend some time talking to them, we might uncover really important agreements, agreements about what they want the world to look like. In Ireland, when I've done dialogue work, if we have uh, unionists and nationalists and we ask them what policies would they like to see in future, of course they disagree vehemently. When we say to them, what would you like your community to look like, they become really quite similar in what they want their communities to look like. When we ask them, what do you want life to be like for you and your family, then there's no difference between them. And so exercises that allow you to identify ways in which, notwithstanding your disagreements, you share fundamental values. That is a terrifically valuable uh, experience to have. You do some amazing stuff. And I, I, I urge everyone to uh, just... Find everything written by Lee Ross, and especially get this book, uh, and uh, become as wise as you possibly can be. Instead of trying to be right, try to be wise. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure, David. I hope we can continue the conversation informally uh, in other venues. Lee Ross's new book is... The wisest one in the room. I have three copies to give away. To learn more, head to the You're Not So Smart Facebook page. episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or an article or a research paper that discusses something new in the arena of the psychology of reasoning, of decision-making, of judgments, and all of that sort of stuff. And then after that, I eat a cookie. Now, in this episode, we're discussing a really interesting paper that came out just recently in the journal Cognitive Science. And in that journal, the name of the paper is The Selective Laziness of Reasoning. One of the authors is Hugo Mercier, who was a guest on this show in a previous episode. And so in this study, they talk about, in the actual study itself, they write, reasoning research suggests that people use more stringent criteria when they evaluate others' arguments than when they produce arguments themselves. And then they go on to say in the article, this is called selective laziness, is what they're calling it. And so they use this study, they produce this study in, to sort of suss out the fact that whenever you are trying to argue with other people and you're evaluating the strength of your argument versus the strength of their argument, you always tend to scrutinize and harshly judge the other person's argument at a level that you don't even come close to when you're evaluating your own argument. 
To demonstrate this, the researchers had subjects solve logic problems and then argue for how they reached their answers. In the second phase of the study, then everyone received answers and they assumed that they were other people's answers, other people's arguments for how they reached their conclusions in those logic puzzles. But mixed in there were a couple of their own arguments, arguments from that first part of the study. And what they discovered was around 58% of the people, when they were looking at their own arguments, would then dismiss them as being invalid in some way or just not up to par or in some way mistaken, especially, of course, if they actually had gotten the logic problem incorrect. But either way, they were still much more harshly judging the argument when they were on the receiving than they were in the producing. So as you produce arguments, and this is something that Hugo Mercier has said before in in previous research, you produce arguments weakly, but you judge arguments strongly. And this is actually, they believe, the proper way for a, a group of human beings to sort of march toward better arguments and the truth. In fact, they say in the study, this is a quote from the study, these experiments provide a very clear demonstration of the selective laziness of reasoning. When reasoning produces arguments, it mostly produces post hoc justifications for intuitive answers. And it is not particularly critical of one's arguments for invalid answers. By contrast, when reasonings, when reasoning evaluates the same arguments as if they were someone else's, it proves both critical and discriminating. So it's a really cool study, and this falls right in line with the argumentation theory, something that Hugo Mercier is uh, is really known for sort of putting out there and putting on the map. If you'd like to learn more about the argumentation theory and Hugo Mercier, that is in episode nine of this podcast. This study is in the journal Cognitive Science under the headline, The Selective Laziness of Reasoning. And I first learned about this in Neuroskeptic, a blog at Discover Magazine. Its headline is also The Selective Laziness of Reasoning. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On each That's episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, C I eat a cookie, cookie. baked from a recipe That's sent in by a listener. Or a reader. And if we pick out your recipe and Mandy cooks those cookies and I eat them right here on the show, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. This episode's winner is, oh, and it is such a winner. This is such a great cookie. This comes from Jennifer Foote. Jennifer Foote sent me a a recipe here for frostbitten molasses cookies entombed with ginger. Entombed with ginger and molasses, the the ingredients are butter, sugar, and molasses, honey, egg yolk, crystallized ginger, flour, baking soda, baking powder, cinnamon, salt, ginger, and nutmeg. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into making this. You cream together the butter, the sugar, the molasses, the honey. You beat in the egg yolk. You put in the ginger. You sift it all together. It makes all this great stuff. You have to chill it for an hour. You bake it for 10 minutes, and out comes this wonderful, beautiful sparkling cookie yes it sparkles in the uh in the light of this room it sparkles like fool's gold (laughs) it's so nice and it's this deep rich brown like like cookies ought to be like when you would color a cookie as a kid that is the color of this thing let's just eat it here we go So, mm, mm, mm. it's so so soft. It's like, it's almost like you don't bite into it. You just lightly pinch a piece off with your mouth and it's so sandy. It's got this sandy, sugary texture and soft and cookie and molasses. And the whole room smells like molasses already. And now I feel like I'm made of molasses. And then the ginger's in there. The ginger comes in and just like straight punches the molasses in the solar plexus. And then the, <laughs> the molasses does a spin kick and hits the uh, ginger in the stomach and they tussle in your mouth. And then you swallow. Mm. This is a great cookie. It isn't hard though, like my r- ridiculous imagination. It is a super soft, pillowy, 
cookie with a sugary, sandy texture that tastes a lot like molasses and some ginger in there to cut that straight molasses taste. This is the greatest thing. Oh, and it's called, she said winter cookies in the email, but Jennifer, Jennifer Foote says they are frostbitten molasses cookies entombed in ginger. They are the best, the best, the best, the best. I love them so much. Uh, we will have the recipe for this at youarenotsosmart.com and pictures of it and all that other stuff. Thank you so much. She says in her instructions, do not overbake. To do so would not be brutal. Don't understand what that means, but Jennifer Foote, you are getting a, a signed copy of the book. Thank you so much. I am enjoying this. I'm going to eat more than one of these, I promise. Mm, what a great cookie. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about at youarenotsosmart.com. And oh my God, we reached our Patreon goal. I'll talk more about it in the next episode, but we reached our first huge milestone, $1,000 a month. Oh boy. Oh my God. I thank you all so much. We'll talk all about it in the next episode. Uh, if you want to find more podcasts like this, go to boingboing.net. You can follow You Are Not So Smart at the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page. Also, it's on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McRaney. There's so much to talk about, especially the new book. Um, the opening music, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Drew Garraway, and this is Banjo Apocalypse. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.